1: I didn't need to come up with some way that the church was supposed to function, some creative, imaginative way, because I knew that God in His Word had laid out a blueprint for how the local church was supposed to act in terms of of its priorities, at least in terms of principles. And that much of this blueprint was revealed in Acts 2 with this first local church at Jerusalem.
2: Isn't it great that God has given us a model for what he wants the church to be like? The hard part is figuring out how that model fits into our modern context and culture without distorting the original intent that God had. This is a fascinating study that is so important in today's world. Many churches have deviated so far from this model we are talking about that they don't even admit or accept that there ever really was a model. You're listening to Verse by Verse Radio, a ministry of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Come visit us sometime. We're located halfway between U.S. 19 and the beaches. Our Bible teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff, who has been the teaching pastor at Lakeside for over 30 years. Here's Pastor Steve with today's timely message in the series, The Church According to the New Testament.
1: Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, and I want to read to you verses 42 through 47. Luke tells us, starting in verse 42, speaking of the church at Jerusalem, he says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, And having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. When I became the pastor teacher of Lakeside, the very first sermon I ever preached was an exposition of these verses. And the reason I chose this particular passage of the Bible as my first message was because these verses tell us how God expects His church to function. See, in Acts chapter 2, We are given the first glimpse, our first glimpse of a local church. There's never been a local church before until now. These verses tell us about the church at Jerusalem, the very first church that ever existed in history. But beyond being the original church, this church at Jerusalem was a special church, folks. It was a, it was a unique church in that it became a model for all other churches to follow, You see, this church was unlike any other assembly that has ever existed. Because in some respects, this was the church that Jesus himself built in a unique way. After all, the apostles were the Lord's hand-picked leaders. They became leaders of this church. The congregation was almost exclusively made up of brand new believers who had been saved on the day of Pentecost. Men and women who had no preconceived views of what the local church was supposed to be like. Here's how one Bible teacher explained the uniqueness of this Jerusalem church. He wrote, this was the church that Jesus built on the day of Pentecost. This was the first one, close to the flame, born at Pentecost, unspotted, uncorrupted in its infancy. The purest church in the days of its splendid prime, when the memory of Jesus was vivid and the gift of the Holy Spirit was new, end of quote. Bible teacher John Stott referred to these verses in Acts 2 about the Jerusalem church as he called it a beautiful little cameo of the Spirit-filled church. Now, having said that, we need to understand in balance that in spite of, of its historical uniqueness, And all the positive elements of this newly formed church, this was a church we can relate to in the sense that it had problems. Sinners attended this church too. Like every church, this church had its faults, this church had its problems. Church, as I said, was made up of sinners. Why do I say that? Some at this church were downright hypocrites. They were hypocrites. Hypocrites who lied and pretended to be something they were not. We know this because Acts chapter 5, still speaking about this church, tells us the story of a married couple named Ananias and Sapphira, members of this church who lied about how much money they received from a sale of some land that they gave to the church. In other words, they sold the land and they got some money and they said, here's what we got for the sale of this land. We're giving it to the church to meet the needs of the poor. Only they lied. They kept some of it for themselves. And they didn't they didn't say that. They They lied. Apparently, the reason they did this was to try to impress the people in the church with how generous they were. Only they were not as generous as they appeared to be. And for their hypocrisy, God severely disciplined them by striking them both dead. So did this church have its problems? Sure. They had hypocrites in the church like Ananias and Sapphira. And like other churches made up of sinners, this Jerusalem church had members who were quite insensitive to the needs of others. How do we know that? Well, look at Acts chapter 6 at verse 1. Same church, same scenario, same people. We read this. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. What is this about? This is a complaint that arose because Greek-speaking widows in the church, that's what it means by Hellenistic widows, but the Greek-speaking widows in the church, meaning Jewish widows, Jewish widows whose predominant language was Greek, not Hebrew. These women, these widows were being overlooked and neglected when food was served daily, while the Jewish widows, whose main language was Hebrew, they were not being overlooked. They were being treated better. So there was a great insensitivity going on in this church. So I just want you to know the church of Jerusalem was a church with... uh, they a great church, but they had real problems just like we do. They had some very real sin issues. Nonetheless, it's still presented to us in the Bible as a model church that God has raised up for other churches like ours to follow. And the reason I say that is because Luke, the human author of Acts, doesn't simply tell us that this church was formed and then he, he moves on. He doesn't. He doesn't do that. He tells us in chapter 2, the verses I read to you, how this church at Jerusalem functions. How they functioned in the days immediately following the coming of the Holy Spirit to permanently indwell believers and to empower them. And the fact that Luke describes in some detail the way this church conducted itself seems to indicate that his intention is to highlight this Jerusalem church as an example and a model for all churches to follow, and as I said, that includes us here at Lakeside. Now, as you'll recall, last week we began a little mini-series on the church, and I chose to do a series on the church because I realized that many at Lakeside, many who are here and attend our church, are relatively new to our church, and therefore they have not been exposed to some very key and important teaching from the New Testament about how a church is supposed to operate and function. and so i decided to take a few weeks to explain to you some of the key truths and principles, timeless principles that have governed the way we do things here at lakeside based on what the new testament says. you see being an independent church that is we're we're not part of a denominational affiliation Lakeside is really not an easy church to label, nor is it an easy church to get a handle on, because we just don't fit into any traditional church mold and category. And so there are challenges to understand what we are. For example, we practice baptism by immersion, but we are not a Baptist church. We don't have some practices and certain emphases and philosophy of ministry normally associated with Baptist churches. We have elders. And elders are historically associated and identified with the Presbyterian church. But we are not a Presbyterian church. And although all of our elders are involved in a teaching ministry, which is characteristic of a Plymouth Brethren assembly, we are not a Plymouth Brethren church. Also, we have a high view of God's sovereignty. And we affirm the Reformers' view of election and Calvinism But unlike many reform-type churches, we believe that God has not replaced Israel with the church, that God has a plan for ethnic Israel, which is taught and unfolded to us in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and even the book of Revelation. We believe that Christ is coming again prior to establishing a literal kingdom on earth, which he promised he would do in the Old Testament. So, because of Lakeside's uniqueness, these messages on the church are designed to help us to, to clarify for us what our church endeavors to be in light of what the New Testament teaches. Now, for some of you I understand these these truths are reminders of what you've already known for years. You believe it, you know this, you've heard this. I understand that. For others, you'll be exposed to some biblical teaching that you have never heard before. It'll be New to you, but wherever you are in your understanding of these truths, my desire, my prayer is that all of us will have a new and a deepened love for the church in general and for your church, Lakeside, in particular, and that this love for the church will result in a renewed zeal and passion to obey what the Bible teaches to be our role and our responsibilities as members of the body of Christ. Now, last Sunday we began the series by looking at only really one issue, it had a number of facets, but one issue, and that is why the church is so important. I mean, that's sort of foundational. Why is the church so important? Why even do a series on the church? And we gave two reasons at the time, last Sunday, that the church is significant. Number one, it is significant because the church belongs to Jesus Christ. If for no other reason, that alone is sufficient. It belongs to Christ in a way that nothing on earth, Belongs to him because unlike any other institution on earth, the church consists of individuals that Jesus purchased with his blood. That's the whole background. That's the whole basis, the whole foundation for what Paul said to the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He said, guard and protect the flock and take heed to yourself. Be careful because men will come in. From outside and from amongst yourselves to lure, try to lure disciples away, but you guard the flock that was purchased with His blood. That's the basis for all of this. The church was purchased at the cross with the blood of Jesus Christ. It belongs to Him and the church means so much to the Lord Jesus that He raises up in every generation uniquely gifted individuals who will protect the church from false teachers who endeavor to harm his flock. And Christ's love for the church goes back to before what we consider time began, because it was in eternity past that God the Father chose those who would make up the church to give the church to Jesus Christ as his personal love gift. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 says. That's what Titus chapter 1 says. He made a promise to the Son this is your bride. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's the essence of truth from the scriptures. Having loved us and purchased us at the cross, Christ demonstrates his love for us today by protecting us from error and by sanctifying us and continuing to sanctify us. And someday he will make us perfectly sanctified and holy in his presence without any spot or defect Therefore we conclude based on all of his love and all that he's done and all that that the bible says how we belong to him and he's purchased us with his precious blood and if the church means this much to Jesus Christ then it must be important to us. Reason number 2 for why the church is important is because the local church is the place where God intends for us to grow and mature spiritually in him. We grow in him in the context of a local church, by leaders who teach us the Word of God and by others in the local church, like-minded believers who minister to us. You see, it's in the context of the environment or the setting of the local church that God gives us pastors and teachers who love us and care for us spiritually. That's God's plan to take us from being spiritual infants and to grow us into mature disciples. His plan is, is the local church. Therefore, we ought to love the church because we benefit so much from the church. Now that was last week and we obviously went into more detail concerning these truths last week so you can get the the CD and listen to that. But today I want us to focus on looking at this one church, the Church at Jerusalem, as the model church for us to pattern ourselves after. You see, the reason I chose Acts chapter 2 and the Jerusalem Church for my first sermon many years ago as a new pastor, was because I wanted these truths about this particular church to set the direction for my ministry at Lakeside. What I saw at Jerusalem, that's what I wanted Lakeside to become. And I may have been, and I was, a brand new and inexperienced pastor, but even then I understood that I didn't need to reinvent the wheel. I didn't need to come up with some way that the church was supposed to function, some creative imaginative way because I knew that God in his word had laid out a blueprint for how the local church was supposed to act in terms of of its priorities, at least in terms of principles. And that much of this blueprint was revealed in Acts 2 with this first local church at Jerusalem. So this morning I want to return to this passage of Scripture in order to examine what the New Testament says about what a healthy church looks like, a healthy local church looks like. As Luke explains to us the various activities that made up this first century local church in Jerusalem, he gives us three marks of a spiritually healthy church. This morning I want to look at just the first two marks of a healthy church. Then we will look at the third mark of a healthy church. Now, as we get into our passage though this morning, we see that the first mark of a healthy church is this. A healthy church is a teaching church. It's a Bible teaching church. Now, before we look at Acts chapter 2, let me set the the situation for you. I want to set the passage for you, the historical setting of it. As Acts 1 begins, Acts chapter 1, the Lord is still on earth. He hasn't left yet. He's still on earth telling his disciples that after the Holy Spirit comes upon them and begins to permanently indwell them and empower them, then they were to branch out. They were to be his disciples. He says in chapter 1, notice verse 8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. This is the fulfillment of the Great Commission, at least the beginning of the fulfillment. Once the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're in the city of Jerusalem, wait for him to come, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then you'll branch out to the region where Jerusalem was in, Judea, then you'll branch out a little further into Samaria, then you'll branch out beyond the borders of Israel. That's how chapter 1 begins. Then we read that Jesus ascends back to the Father, to heaven, while the apostles return from the Mount of Olives. They go back to the city of Jerusalem. Back then, the Mount of Olives was not in the city of Jerusalem. Today, it's part of the city, but not then. And they go back to the city. They wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower them, to indwell them. But in the meantime, while they're waiting in Jerusalem, they continue to spend time in prayer and they choose someone, an individual, a man, to replace Judas as an apostle because they wanted and they needed to have 12 apostles. Now, this is essentially what takes place in Acts chapter 1. As we move into Acts chapter 2, we learn that not long after the events of chapter 1, on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish holiday, by the way. It's a Jewish holiday that takes place 50 days after Passover. That's why it's called Pentecost. Penta meaning five, like the Pentagon is five-sided. Fifty days after Passover, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit did come, and he began to permanently indwell the disciples as well as empower them to serve Christ. As a result of this empowering... We read in chapter 2 that Peter preaches a forceful sermon about Jesus being the Messiah to thousands of Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem. And we learn that 3,000 of them turned to Christ that day, that one day. They turned to Christ for salvation. We read about this in starting in verse 37 in Acts chapter 2. Now, he is he has given his sermon. By the way, I think this is just the summation of Peter's sermon, because otherwise he just gave a one minute sermon. And we know that's not possible. So this is just a summation of it. But we read in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and pierced to the heart because he said, essentially, you killed him. Your Messiah showed up and you, along with the Romans, killed him. So they were they were. Pierced in their heart, they were convicted. They said to Peter, the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. In other words, the church as an entity is born on the day of Pentecost. That's where it comes into into place. That's where it's born, that's where it starts. In the city of Jerusalem, the, the church and this local church started out with a little over 3,000 people. I say a little over because 120 already were meeting in Jerusalem. So, 3,000 plus. So now what are they supposed to do? Now what are the apostles supposed to do? I mean, how are you supposed to, how are they supposed to minister to all of these people? Now that so many people have come to Christ, and what a thrilling thing that, that was 3,000 call upon the name of the Lord to, to be saved. What do you do with 3,000 new believers? You do exactly what Jesus told you to do in the Great Commission just a few weeks earlier. You help them to become healthy, mature disciples. You help these new disciples to grow in Christ. And how do you do that? You follow the Great Commission. You baptize them and as they they make a public confession of their faith in Christ, and then you begin to systematically teach them everything that the Lord commanded you. That's the Great Commission. That's exactly what Jesus said to do, and that's exactly what they did. Because we read in verse 42, after baptizing all these folks, here's what happened. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, essentially what this means is that these new believers were continually being taught the word of God by the apostles. But what were the apostles teaching them? Well, they were teaching them the very truths that Jesus had taught them during his three-year ministry with them. Now, you might wonder, well, how do they remember all this? There are a lot of things that Jesus said. Let me show you how they remembered this. Go back, if you will, to John chapter 14, verse 26. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had taught his disciples a little bit about what was coming. And he said in John 14, verse 26, but the helper, he explains who that is, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And this is where it comes into place. The Holy Spirit brought to their minds perfectly with an infallible remembrance of all that Jesus had taught them. I mean, These men didn't have perfect memories. They were like, you and me, we don't remember everything that happened over a three-week period of time. Some of us can't remember what happened yesterday. But the Holy Spirit brought to their minds exactly what Jesus had taught them.
2: The early church emphasized prayer and the ministry of the Word. They made doctrine, or teaching, their first priority. Shouldn't we do the same? That's the pattern that was established for us to imitate. We need to get back to basics in the Church of Jesus Christ. This message, and many others, are available at our website, versebyverseradio.org. Call us at 727-239-0306 if you are in need of help, or if you want to start getting regular information from our ministry. If you would like, you can donate to this ministry by calling, sending a gift through the mail, or you can even give online. For Pastor Steve and the entire staff, this is Jerry Pruden inviting you to listen next time on Verse by Verse.